Murder in the North, Episode 15, The Secret of Lake Bodum. Some 60 years ago, four teenagers spent the night in a tent on the shores of Lake Bodum, 22 kilometers west of the Finnish capital Helsinki. It's the start of the summer holidays, and 18-year-old friends Niels and Seppo have taken Emily and Tuliki, two girls aged 15, to the idyllic lake to camp on the beach. In the early hours of June the 5th, 1960, the four teens are brutally attacked. Only one of them will return from this trip, and the incident will haunt him for the rest of his life. You're listening to Murder in the North, a podcast about some of the most shocking murder cases in Scandinavia. Our account of these cases is based on sources in the public domain, including interviews, press releases and court proceedings. Some narrative details were seen as irrelevant to the plot and therefore left out. This podcast series contains scenes of violence that some listeners may find distressing. You're listening to a true story, as researched by Jana Argard and told by me, Jenna Sharp. Picturesque Lake Bodum is more than three kilometers long, a kilometer wide, and surrounded by cliffs and forests. It's a popular fishing spot with locals. Here and there, the shoreline is fronted by a sandy beach. It's the Whitsun weekend in 1960, and Seppo and his best friend Niels have invited two girls to come camping with them. Niels has his eye on Emily. Tuliki and Seppo are already a couple. The two lads drink alcohol from a bottle they've brought with them. The girls politely decline. After all... They're only 15. It's late at night, and the four teenagers are having a great time at the campsite. It's still light and warm. They grill sausages over a fire, play cards, and swim in the lake. Niels views the camping trip as a chance to get closer to Emily, but the summer's evening is taking a different turn, and it's not as romantic as Niels had hoped. Witnesses later testify hearing loud, agitated voices by the lake. It sounded as though the young people were arguing. What's certain is that around midnight, they all went to sleep in the same tent. But what happened after that remains a mystery. In the morning, the four teens are found by a young woman and her nephew, who are planning to go for a dip in the lake and walk past the campsite. The first person they spot is Niels. Half his body is outside the tent. He's unconscious, and his face has been smashed to a pulp. The young woman later talks to newspaper Hofvad Stadsbladet about what she discovered that morning. Niels looks terrible. His face is one big, 
bloody mess. When she sees the dead, who are still inside the tent at this point, they seem much less seriously injured. The tent fabric was cut open in the night while the young people were asleep. Someone entered the tent and knocked the four unconscious with a rock. After that, Seppo and the two girls were stabbed with a knife. Emily died from 15 deep stab wounds in the back. Tuliki's body is partially outside the tent. She was hit on the back of the head with a rock, and judging by the drag marks, she must have managed to crawl out of the tent before the perpetrator pulled her back in. Niels has been roughed up pretty bad, but he's the only one who's still alive. He has cuts to the face, a head injury caused by a blow to his temple and a broken jaw. He's taken to hospital, but the head trauma has robbed him of all memories of the night by the lake. He remembers that the four of them went to bed around midnight and that he and Seppo got up at sunrise to go fishing. After that, everything goes blank. The young woman who found Niels and the others isn't questioned by police. In fact, the police investigation is riddled with mistakes and lost opportunities. Forensic science wasn't very advanced in the 1960s, and the police relied largely on witness statements. These testimonies contain a few interesting but contradictory observations. One witness clearly heard an argument while another, a local woman, says she saw a man fishing beside the campsite. That same witness also saw two young men walking along the beach. A perch is found on one of the rocks nearby, which seems to corroborate her account. The police suspect that Niels and Seppo went fishing and left the perch behind. If that's true... The murders didn't happen until after the boys left the beach and returned to the tent. That's why the time of the murders, in line with witness statements, is estimated to be between five and six in the morning. Two birdwatchers claim that as they passed the campsite early in the morning, they saw a blonde man walking away from the tent. They also say that it looked as if another young man was sleeping in front of the tent. That could have been Niels, who was later found half in and half out of the tent. There was another witness not far from the youngster's tent during the hours in question. A man who'd been waiting for a friend because they'd planned to go fishing together. The witness was in the area from four till eight in the morning and heard no screaming or other noise from the campsite. If the youngsters had been brutally murdered between 5 and 6 a.m., then surely he should have heard something. Due to Niels's memory loss, it's impossible to either confirm or refute these various witness statements. So before long, the investigation comes to a halt. And because Niels says he can't remember anything, he's also unable to reconstruct events that night. In an attempt led by Dr. Stenbach, he's even questioned under hypnosis. While under, 
Niels gives a detailed description of the person who forced his way into the tent that night. Among other things, he remembers flashes of red and black clothing worn by the assailant, but he can't suggest a motive for the attack. He thinks it must have been a total stranger. When four people enter a tent, three of them are murdered, and the fourth is the only one to come out alive, the sole survivor would appear to be the obvious suspect. But that's not what happened in 1960. In the Finland of the 1960s, many men were still traumatized by their involvement in World War II. Many of them were suffering from shell shock, better known today as post-traumatic stress disorder. Violence, both in a domestic setting and in public, wasn't uncommon. That's why it didn't seem far-fetched that a mentally ill person might have walked past the tent, lost his temper for some reason, and then killed the sleeping youths. In the course of the investigation, the police questioned several suspects. One of them is a German war veteran who turns up at a local hospital shortly after the Lake Bodum murders, with his clothes covered in blood. The young doctor who attends to him later writes a book. In it, he describes how, a day after the murders, he and two colleagues treat a confused and injured man. The man is German. The doctor speculates that the German had to be behind the Lake Bodum murders, but that as a secret agent, he was protected by the Finnish intelligence service. The police investigate him and conclude that the German war veteran has an alibi for the night of the murders and the morning after. It won't be the last implausible theory doing the rounds, but the police are no closer to solving the case. Thorough crime scene investigations, as we know them now, didn't really exist at the time. Back then, DNA evidence was unknown, and blood types the only source of information. Besides, the police only kept some of the evidence found at the crime scene, including the tent and the victim's clothes and shoes. The shoes are particularly interesting. The four pairs are found in the bushes, beside a path some 800 metres from the campsite. The police posit the theory that Niels, Seppo, Tuliki and Emily had all left their shoes in front of the tent before they went to bed. In the morning, the perpetrator took the shoes and hid them so the teenagers would struggle to get away. The rock and the knife, the murder weapons have disappeared. The lake is searched under the watchful eyes of curious locals, as is the crime scene, but neither search operation is up to scratch. And not only that, quite a few unauthorized people were snooping around shortly after the youngsters were found, which has hampered the preservation of usable evidence on the campsite and in the surrounding area. Niels leaves hospital on the 23rd of June, 1960, 
18 days after that dreadful night on Lake Bodum. He seems keen to put the events behind him as quickly as possible. He certainly manages to walk away from the case without attracting too much attention. Not much is known about him and his life after the discharge from hospital. A few years after the incident, he marries, he has children, and works as a bus driver in Helsinki. As a family man, he has a perfectly ordinary life, and he never gets into trouble with the police. Finland moves on, but the gruesome murders of Lake Bodum remain shrouded in mystery. This changes when Detective Marku Tuominen dusts off the case in 2004. There's no statute of limitations on murder and manslaughter in Finland, so this extraordinary case was never officially closed. Detective Tuominen takes a fresh approach to the murders and raises quite a few unanswered questions. Is Niels really a victim? He survived without life-threatening injuries, whereas his friends were hit over the head with a rock and stabbed multiple times. How is it possible that the perpetrator was so thorough and ruthless with the three others, but let Niels escape with his life? Emily, the girl Niels fancied, was the one most savagely attacked. She was stabbed 15 times and discovered completely naked. Of course, it can no longer be ascertained whether she went to bed without any clothes on or whether the perpetrator undressed her. And then there's the peculiar fact that the teenager's shoes were taken from the tent and thrown into the bushes some distance from the campsite. When the investigators found Niels's shoes, they noticed blood on them. On the outside, that is. There was no blood inside the shoes. It's likely that the perpetrator wore these shoes during the killings, otherwise they would have had blood on the inside too. A large-scale forensic investigation is launched. Items recovered from the crime scene are looked at again, alongside all the witness statements. The confrontation inside the tent is assumed to have been so intense that it must have left the perpetrator at least slightly injured. However, modern DNA analysis shows that all the blood inside the tent belonged to Niels, Seppo, Tuliki and Irmeli. The police and public prosecution service see this as proof that there is no unknown perpetrator. Niels, who's now 63, is taken into custody in August 2004, charged with murdering Seppo, Emily, and Tuliki. The Finnish people immediately split into two camps, those who believe in Niels's innocence and those who think he's responsible for the murders. Two months later, Niels is released pending his trial. A year later, in 2005, the prosecutor brings the case to court. In court, the prosecutor presents a new version of events that fateful night. It's based on the assumption that Niels flew into a rage after Emily rejected his advances. 
The four friends then argued loudly until Seppo intervened. He threw Niels out of the tent and zipped it from the inside so he couldn't get back in. Overcome by anger and jealousy, Niels is thought to have collected several rocks from the beach, cut open the tent with his knife, and murdered his three friends. The faces of the three victims were smashed with a rock, and when Emily tried to flee, Niels stabbed her 15 times in the back. One of the pieces of evidence corroborating the prosecutor's theory are Niels' shoes, which are spattered with blood on the outside, blood belonging to all four of the teens. That means that Niels slept with his shoes on and the perpetrator took them off and hid them only after the attack, or that Niels was wearing the shoes when he battered his three friends. If Niels hadn't been wearing shoes at the time of the attack, they would have had blood on the inside, just like the other three pairs. According to the prosecutor, this is clear evidence that Niels is the murderer. But how do these new allegations against Niels compare to the findings from the 1960 investigation? Niels has always maintained that he has no memories of the night in question. According to hypnosis specialist Dr. Stenbach, who hypnotized Niels in 1960, it's plausible enough that he's suffering from memory loss. Traumatic events can be suppressed to the point where they can no longer be retrieved later, not even from the subconscious. Dr. Stenbach doesn't doubt Niels' innocence, and puts the following question to the prosecutor. How can Niels have sustained such serious head injuries if he's the one who committed the murders? I don't think Niels Gustafsson is guilty. But Niels may have sustained his injuries during a fierce fight with Seppo, the prosecutor suggests. The police investigation found no traces of blood that point to the presence of a fifth person in the tent. During the next stage of the trial, it's the defense's turn. One by one, the lawyers dissect the accusations leveled at their client. The police investigation had some serious shortcomings, they argue. The evidence wasn't stored properly, for example, and journalists saw and touched the evidence. Five knives were originally retrieved from the tent and analyzed, they subsequently went missing from the police archive. The victim's clothing was returned to the families. Wallets, watches and other valuables had disappeared from the crime scene. The investigators and the prosecutor suggest that Niels hid these items to create the impression that the murders were a robbery gone wrong. But when could he have done that, the lawyers for the defense ask, and where would he have hidden these things? Emily wrote in her diary every evening. She had it with her in the tent and wrote in it on the eve of the murders, probably just before she went to bed. The diary is one of the trump cards for the defense. In it, Emily didn't mention an argument between the four teenagers, 
And then there's the unknown blonde man, who was seen walking past the crime scene at six in the morning by several witnesses, independently of each other. What happened to him? Could he possibly be the perpetrator? In a final, desperate attempt to establish Niels's guilt, the prosecutor calls Detective Marku Tuominen to the witness stand. He claims that during one of his interviews, Niels said, What's done is done. I'll get 15 years for it. Tuominen believes this should be read as a confession. At the time of the trial, a life term effectively means 15 years in prison. But the preliminary investigation report, which was published prior to the trial, doesn't include this statement. The detective's claim is first mentioned in court. The judges decide to disregard the alleged cryptic confession and to concentrate instead on witness statements about the unidentified blonde man. They also take into account that Niels is an ordinary man who has led a respectable life without ever getting into trouble with the police. He's described as a quiet and somewhat frugal man who approaches life with a generous dose of humour. Niels is acquitted in October 2005. He receives €45,000, the equivalent of £40,000, in compensation for the 59 days he spent in custody. The prosecution service decides against an appeal. Niels Gustafsson retired a long time ago. He doesn't think his friend's murders will ever be solved. As he tells the media after his acquittal, there's only one option left now, for the murderer to turn himself in and confess. I don't see this happening, after all this time. From Podimo, this is Murder in the North. A new episode every week, wherever you get podcasts. And for early access to episodes, and to listen ad-free, subscribe to Podimo UK on Apple Podcasts. <laughs>